tonight on NBC. Will everyone in the cardiac surgical department please raise your hands? Thank you. You're all fired. Based on an inspiring true story. Any department who places billing above care, you will be terminated. One doctor will break every rule. Just tell me what you need, what your patients need. To inspire a revolution. Let's get into some trouble. Let's be doctors again. From the network that brings you This Is Us, New Amsterdam, tonight on NBC. This podcast is brought to you by Simply Light. Introducing Simply Light Lemonade. Can you hear that? That's the sweet sound of 75% less sugar and calories. We want to make sure you hear it's 75% less sugar and calories because it tastes so good. From the podglomerate, you're listening to The Feast. I'm Dr. Laura Carlson, and I explore the history of food. From empires of sugar to lunch counter revolutions. Whether it's mom's home cooking or opulent hundred-course dinners, food has fueled politics, technology, religion, and more. History is full of food. And on each episode of The Feast, we're bringing you the meals that made it. Paris was starving. The Prussian army was camped just outside the city, preventing any food from reaching the increasingly hungry population within Paris's walls. And as the army waited and watched, Parisians grew more and more desperate for food. It was early December, 1870, and in the span of a few short months, France had upended itself. It wasn't just the food, although that certainly hadn't helped. The Bonapartes, leaders of France for the better part of a century, were finally gone. Napoleon III's surrender in September at the Battle of Sedan had sealed his dynasty's fate. And now, out of the ashes of France's empire, the Third Republic was born. As the Parisians settled in for what would become a long, hungry winter, the rest of France looked on, waiting to see what would come of this young Republican government. It had been almost 100 years since that first revolution of 1789, France's first attempt at a country without a king. But 18th-century Republican dreams had ended not with a president or even a parliament, but with an emperor. And 19th-century France had been defined by the Bonapartes, by their successes and failures on the battlefield, by their politics, by their architecture. Uh, Parisians, after all, were still adjusting to Hausmann's redesign of their fair city with its new, broad, what some might call anti-revolutionary boulevards. But now the Bonapartes were gone. Napoleon III had been utterly defeated at the hands of the Prussians, now even the staunchest of imperial supporters had to admit it. A chapter in French history was over. No one knew how long the young Republican government would last, but the days of the empire, of the monarchy, seemed to be finally done. Which meant few, if any, people during that 
cold, hungry winter of 1870, were interested in reading stories about swashbuckling musketeers, or lovelorn queens, or the opulent lifestyles of the aristocracy. As Parisian booksellers hunkered down in their shops during the Prussian siege, looking for something, anything, to keep them warm, when it came to a choice of which books to burn in the fireplace, too often it was the unsold stock of one Alexander Dumas that faced the fire. So up in smoke went the stories of D'Artagnan, of Athos, Porthos, and Aramis. Up went the romances, featuring Marie Antoinette and her various lovers at Versailles. And as most French heads were turned in the direction of Prussia in 1870, startlingly few remarked upon the death of a man once considered to be a national treasure. An author and playwright who would claim to have written over 100,000 pages in his lifetime. A man who had started with comparatively nothing. The grandson of a penniless French aristocrat and an African slave girl, who had made his way up the ranks of Parisian society through his pen, through his epic adventure stories that had cast a romantic glow over the monarchy and aristocracy, and who had entertained audiences from France to England to America for the better part of a century. But by December 1870, four months into the Siege of Paris, no one was interested in the death of Alexander Dumas. And certainly fewer still were interested in the man's final work, as Parisians desperately looked everywhere for something to eat, emptying its zoos, even scouring the streets for rats. No one was interested in editing the massive tome that was Dumas' legacy. A 600,000-word volume dedicated ironically to the one subject that was plaguing the minds of Parisians. Food. It had been an unfortunate product of bad timing. Dumas had been talking about the book for years, long before the war with Prussia and his own flight from Paris, which hadn't been so much a result of war, but from bad finances. Dumas had never been much good with money, and so, with the diminishing royalties trickling in from his novels, he had left the City of Lights for the west coast of France. To sit, rest, and finally write his love letter to food. But no one had been interested in publishing it. Everyone knew Dumas' glory days were behind him. So Dumas had had to beg a young Parisian publisher by the name of Alphonse Lemaire to even consider his epic idea for a dictionary devoted to food. Lemaire had been doubtful. He published poets, not washed-up novelists. But Dumas had won him over, promising a book unlike any other. A celebration of cuisine, part cookbook, part memoir, a comprehensive anthology that would systematically address the world of food from A to Z, what he lovingly referred to as Le Grand Dictionnaire de Cuisine. It was a good pitch, and Le Maire had relented, offering a moderate advance on the book. So in 1869, off Dumas went, away from the Prussians, away from Paris, to the windy west coast of France. And that 
had apparently been that. Lemaire heard nothing from Dumas, and with his shop located in the heart of Paris, the publisher soon had other matters on his mind. It wasn't until more than a year later, in early spring of 1870, that a parcel arrived on the publishing house's doorstep. Lemaire opened the package to find the long-awaited manuscript from Dumas. It was gigantic. At over 600,000 words, along with hand-drawn illustrations, Lemaire immediately knew that editing this work would be a monumental task, one that he, more used to page-length poetry, found himself utterly ill-prepared for. In his frustration, he wrote to Dumas, asking for direction, where he should even start. There was the 300-page preface, in desperate need of an editor's pen, and then there were the dictionary entries themselves. Disorganized wasn't really the word for it. If Dumas had been planning to write a comprehensive dictionary of food, well, he had an interesting way of tackling it. An entry on milk, in its entirety, received barely half a page, while amber, yes, amber, received five pages of lavish attention. The entry on cheese, for example, all cheese, a mere one and a half pages, while the hoko, a wild bird of South America, Dumas had given at least two pages to. Now, giving fewer words to cheese than a wild rare bird may have been grounds for revoking Dumas' French citizenship. But you have to give it to him. La Mer was intrigued. With a little, okay, maybe substantial editing, Dumas' book had potential. But any plans for editing, let alone publishing Dumas' food dictionary, were quickly set aside in the face of Prussian invasion and the resulting siege of Paris. By the time Le Maire returned the book early in 1871, Dumas was already dead, dying in the small village of Dijeppe on the very day, December 5, 1870, Prussians had conquered the town. So now, Le Maire had another problem. He felt obligated to fulfill his promise to Dumas to publish the work. The author had certainly fulfilled his end of the bargain with all 600,000 words. Now, the work was one of the last the world would ever see by the famed author of The Three Musketeers, or The Man in the Iron Mask. Books that weren't exactly flying off the shelves these days, but certainly were remembered fondly by most of the reading public. But... It was also undeniable that the book needed serious work. So Lemaire turned to those in the literary world he knew. Two young poets by the names of Le Comte de Lille and Anatole France. Both were up-and-comers in the French world of poetry, and they would spend the next year and a half working on Dumas' great dictionary of food. And finally, at the tail end of maybe 1872... Maybe the early beginnings of 1873, Alexandre Dumas' Le Grand Dictionnaire de Cuisine was finally published. 
it didn't exactly fly off the shelves. The two poets who had worked as editors weren't exactly known for their interest in gastronomy. Neither of them would write a work on food for the rest of their careers. They had done as much as they could, but Dumas' book remained... unique. Because in what other dictionary can you find an entry on asparagus that starts, quote, There's no point in describing this plant, which everyone knows. And ends with, Carnivorous animals, such as cats and dogs, like this vegetable very much. Besides little-known facts about asparagus-loving cats, Dumas also includes some questionable historical facts on hangover cures in his dictionary. In an entry on celery, Dumas states confidently that In classical times, people would garland themselves with a vegetable during meals to neutralize the strong effects of wine. Try that at the next meeting of your wine society. I'm sure no one will notice. But beyond simple descriptions of vegetables, Dumas' dictionary also contains bright spots from his days as a high-society author, whining and dining with the creme de la creme of 19th-century Paris. Dumas' entry on sturgeon stands out in particular, which, in his own words, was, quote, a large river fish weighing up to three to four hundred pounds, a rare fish, and highly esteemed. Straightforward enough, but Dumas clearly had more to say on just how esteemed this fish could be in the dining circles of Paris. What follows is an account of an epic dinner, held by no less than Jean-Jacques Régis de Cambacérès, who had not only participated in the Revolution of 1789, but also helped to pen the Napoleonic Code, the core of French civil law under Napoleon Bonaparte. But when not laying the groundwork for French government, apparently Cambacérès was no stranger to entertainment, and for a particularly opulent dinner had ordered not one, but two sturgeons to present to his guests one weighing in at an impressive 162 pounds, the other even larger at 187. By anyone's reasonable estimation, one monstrously-sized fish should have been enough for any dinner party. But not for Cambacérès. The problem was how to serve two gigantic fish. The Duke found himself in a slightly unique position, you see. Serving just one hundred-plus-pound fish would be quite the spectacle, sure to impress any dinner guest. But how to preserve that sense of wonder for a second gigantic fish? Now, calmer heads would have surely just had one of the two fish saved for another occasion, but not in the Cambacere's household. Just like any magician, you don't pull the same trick twice. The Duke's cooks were at a loss. Both fish had to be presented on the same night to the same guests. And in true Cambacere style, in the most stunning and impressive means possible. After a bit of thought, a plan was devised. The dinner would go like this. The first sturgeon would be presented as what was known as a relevé du potage, an impressive display in which the whole fish was presented to the guests, paraded around the dining room before being taken back into the kitchen to be carved up into individual portions. And 
parade is truly the word for it. Cambaceres ordered the fish to be adorned in leaves and flowers, accompanied by musicians playing flutes and violins, dressed in chef outfits as it made its way around the large dining room table. Footmen carried torches before the fish. Now, the sturgeon itself rested on a large platter, maybe eight, maybe ten feet in length, carried on the shoulders of kitchen assistants. Unable to believe their eyes, the Duke's guests clambered onto their dining chairs to get a better look at this massive fish. With its circuit around the room complete, the fish and its conveyors were about to return to the kitchen when disaster struck. One of the assistants helping to carry the sturgeon tripped and fell. The fish tumbled from its platter, and before anyone could do anything, the giant thing was on the floor. The dining room was aghast. The fish, all 162 pounds of it, was ruined. The guest's eyes immediately went to their host to gauge his reaction. Interestingly, he was a study in composure. He waited until the din had subsided, and then, in a calm but clear voice, said, Serve the other one. Immediately, a second procession entered the dining room, a mirror image of the first, to the guests' surprise and delight. With one key difference, this fish was even bigger than the first. Tonight on NBC. Will everyone in the cardiac surgical department please raise your hands? Thank you. You're all fired. Based on an inspiring true story. Any department who places billing above care, you will be terminated. One doctor will break every rule. Just tell me what you need, what your patients need. To inspire a revolution. Let's get into some trouble. Let's be doctors again. From the network that brings you This Is Us, New Amsterdam, tonight on NBC. This podcast is brought to you by Simply Light. Introducing Simply Light Lemonade. Can you hear that? That's the sweet sound of 75% less sugar and calories. We want to make sure you hear it's 75% less sugar and calories because it tastes so good. Epic meals like the two sturgeon dinner pepper Dumas' dictionary, including a few that took place in Dumas' own kitchen. During the height of his fame, after the publication of The Three Musketeers and The Count of Monte Cristo in the 1840s, Dumas led a life very similar to the characters he had created. Building an enormous house outside Paris called, appropriately enough, the Chateau de Monte Cristo, he entertained almost daily. But even the Society of Paris occasionally got too much for Dumas, and so he would rent a large house on a lakeshore. There, with neighbors like Princess Matilda, the niece of Napoleon on one side, and the controversial journalist and politician Émile de Girardon on the other, Dumas spent his summers. And on one particular summer weekend, Dumas, along with his latest mistress, an aspiring Italian opera singer who went by the nickname of Gordosa, were relaxing at his lakeside home. Now, Gordosa had a bit of a reputation and was apparently little loved by the household staff, either for her singing, 
which seemed to never improve no matter how much Dumas spent on her singing lessons, nor for her rather abrupt manner of ordering everyone around, often firing cooks and butlers at a moment's notice. But Dumas was in the habit of welcoming guests to his home every weekend. Anywhere from 10 to 100 people might stop by at the drop of a hat. And so when Dumas learned one bright, sunny Sunday morning that guests would be stopping by later that afternoon for lunch, well, he went down to the kitchen to ask the cooks to make something appropriate for a party. What he discovered, however, was a cold hearth and an empty room. Gordosa, in her infinite wisdom, had fired the kitchen staff on Saturday evening without letting him know. As a result, not only was there no one on hand to prepare a meal for the imminent arrivals, but there was no fresh food in the kitchen either. The staff had been dismissed before the weekend trip to the market. So Dumas faced an empty larder and an empty kitchen, with guests already making their way to his home. But Dumas was undaunted and searched the kitchen high and low, finding only sacks of rice, tomatoes, and butter. Well, necessity, as they say, is the mother of invention, so Dumas set to work. Cooking the tomatoes in a hefty dose of butter, he also boiled the rice, adding the two together at the last moment to create a kind of casserole. Now, I agree. What Dumas created here wasn't exactly the height of fine dining. We might recognize this dish more along the lines of what a desperate college student might make to avoid a trip to the grocery store. But this was 19th century France. No one expected the head of the household, let alone a famed writer, to roll up his sleeves and boil rice in the kitchen, let alone make a tomato sauce. To get a sense of how odd or even unexpected this was, consider it this way. Imagine if you went over to someone's house, and instead of sitting down to watch some TV or a movie, they performed a one-person play for you. I admit, it's a reach in terms of a comparison, but few, if anyone, would have expected someone of Dumas' fortune or status to be responsible for cooking a meal for his own guests. Someone like that had a staff for such things. And so the meal actually left everyone delighted. Sure, it was humble fare, but the unique experience of having a meal prepared by the author of The Three Musketeers meant no guest turned up his nose at such a humble offering. And thankfully, while the larder may have been bare, the wine cellar certainly wasn't. After a few glasses, everyone agreed it was the best meal they had had in recent memory. So by the late 1860s, when Dumas decided to include this warm memory of a sunny Sunday meal in his dictionnaire, Dumas had dedicated himself to the art of cuisine hoping his legacy would be for his contributions to gastronomy rather than literature. And his international travels had certainly helped a bit towards this case. In America, where his novels were bestsellers, the famous New York restaurant Delmonico's even honored Dumas by naming, of all things, a potato salad after him, one updated and reprinted by none other than James Beard decades later. Dumas was even on record about his dedication to cuisine, stating, quote, I see with pleasure that my culinary reputation is growing, and bids fair to eclipse before long my literary reputation. God be praised. 
I shall then be able to devote myself to a respectable calling, and to bequeath to my children, instead of books which they would only inherit for fifteen or twenty years, casseroles and marmites, which they would inherit for eternity. I shall relinquish the pen in favor of the kitchen spoon. But the gastronomic work that consumed Dumas' later years, dedicated to finishing his great dictionary of cuisine, was soon forgotten. In the aftermath of the Franco-Prussian War, not to mention the birth of the Third Republic, by the time his dictionary was published in 1873, no one was interested in the author's musings on sturgeon, or asparagus, even his recipe for tomato rice casserole. The publishing house initially thought it was a problem of size. 600,000 word dictionaries on cooking weren't usually bestsellers. So they decided to issue a shortened version of the dictionary and released it just a few years after the first. Still, nothing. The world, it seemed, had moved on from Dumas. Obituaries for the author in 1870 had often been snide and dismissive. As one account in the British Literary Journal, the Athenaeum stated, There is no doubt that Alexander Dumas will never be reckoned against those who have really taken the lead in the literary progress of the age. And the reason is not far to seek. He had no system, no theories, no well-digested and coherent scheme about man and society. He sailed about over the wide field of literature without even an aesthetic, much less a moral chart to guide him. While Dumas' culinary dictionary languished, unsold, his fantastical romanticized novels of French society, with their swashbuckling musketeers and chivalric codes of honor, continued to sell well, particularly in Britain and America. And with the arrival of motion pictures at the turn of the 20th century, Dumas' stories became perfect fodder for the silver screen. The Tale of the Three Musketeers has featured in over 40 different films since 1903, and the names Athos, Porthos, and Aramis have become household names among generations of movie lovers, with everyone from Douglas Fairbanks to Gene Kelly to Christopher Walken to Kiefer Sutherland taking a turn at playing a musketeer. Why don't you use your right hand, Athos? I save my right hand for my drinking. But what about Dumas' beloved Dictionary of Cuisine? Few people, even devoted fans of Dumas' work, knew about it. Fewer still read it. And it was only in the mid-1970s, a full century after the book had been written, that someone finally dusted off the text in an attempt to bring new life to Dumas' final work. Alan Davidson, the future editor of the Oxford Companion to Food, took up the mantle of trying to translate and explain Dumas' purpose to a 20th century public. But even he had doubts about the work's value. In one of the only English versions of the text, known simply as Dumas on Food, Davidson wrote in the preface, Our natural inclination would always be to translate a book in full, and not to meddle with its structure. But in this instance, we have had no hesitation in doing acts of considerable violence, all with the aim of extracting the real Dumas, like silver, from the dross in which it is embedded. That's one heck of a backhanded compliment. But Dumas on food, the result of Davidson's considerable violent editing, 
is still the most widely available version of the culinary dictionary. And sure, there are far better reference dictionaries out there on food, but Dumas' book is a horse of an entirely different color, a semi-self-portrait of the gastronomy and culinary life of 19th century France. By 1870, the last year of Dumas' life, as the Prussian army marched through the country and Napoleon's empire dissolved, the author may have sensed that the world he was writing about, with its two sturgeon dinners and Sunday lunches in chateaus with princesses for neighbors, was already gone. So, just like his musketeers and damsels in distress, Dumas wrote a dictionary that epitomized and romanticized what he had enjoyed most out of life. Food. If you'd like to make Delmonico Restaurant's potato salad homage to Alexander Dumas that we mentioned in this episode, we'll include a link to it on our website at thefeastpodcast.org. We made it earlier this week, actually, and it's delicious. It calls for the potatoes to be doused in half a cup of white wine. And I'm telling you, no recipe with half a cup of white wine can ever be bad. The Feast is written and produced by me, Laura Carlson, with technical direction by Mike Port. Music this week featured work by Jazar, the Philadelphia String Quartet, Ben Carey, musicians from Marlboro, Sony Venturum, and Peter Rodenko. Find out more about all these great musicians by checking out the show notes for this episode on our website. And the clip you heard was from the fantastic 1948 film The Three Musketeers, featuring a very young and a very spry Gene Kelly as D'Artagnan. If you haven't seen it, it's definitely worth a watch. If you have suggestions for the feast, we'd love to hear them. Make sure you're following us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or wherever. We're at feast underscore podcast. We love hearing from listeners, so always feel free to get in touch with questions or comments. And that's all for us this week. We'll be back in two weeks' time with more great stories of the meals that made history. I'm Laura Carlson, and this is The Feast. The Podglomerate. A Sonic Universe. Tonight on NBC. Will everyone in the cardiac surgical department please raise your hands? Thank you. You're all fired. Based on an inspiring true story. Any department who places billing above care, you will be terminated. One doctor will break every rule. Just tell me what you need, what your patients need. To inspire a revolution. Let's get into some trouble. Let's be doctors again. From the network that brings you This Is Us, New Amsterdam, tonight on NBC.